Tuesday, December 8th, the morning after the Washington football team kind of sort of shocked the world and beat Pittsburgh, the 11-0 Pittsburgh Steelers. Here to talk about that is the NFC beast to my NFC least, Matt Terrell. Hey, Matt. Hey, Jamie. I still don't understand why I get to be the good one in these comparisons. It never makes sense to me. I'm very generous. So the skins, I'm sorry, I keep doing that. The Washington football team. It's okay. And the New York Giants, the New York football team, were both two and seven at one point. I think the Giants were even one and seven. Now both of them are five and seven. They've won a combined seven straight games. The Giants beat Seattle and Washington beat Pittsburgh. What's going on? Uh, I don't actually know. The thing that I find the funniest about it all is how the conversation is slowly changing from this, like, well, let's see who can get to six wins to win the NFC East, whatever it is. And now there's talk of wild card spots and, and multiple playoff berths. And I mean, the whole thing is frankly insane. Washington well, and New York, I guess, are both one game back in, in a very crowded wild card picture that I, I wasn't even considering the wild card until like 24 hours ago. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little weird. Um, I still think that either of those teams really needs to just focus on winning the division. Um, I, I think expecting a wild card is just insane. But I mean, what was the joke I made after they beat the Bengals? Um, you know, technically a winning record remains in play, even all these weeks later. It's it's wild that they were two and seven. They hadn't beat beaten a good team until just now, <laughs> like just last night. All season long, they the Washington has a 42% chance of making the playoffs. I'm looking at it on 538 right now. New York is 54%. I will say before we go th- further, I was legitimately pissed off that the Giants beat the Seahawks on Sunday. Like when I saw when I got that alert on my phone, I, I was upset. I was annoyed too, although it's um it's mitigated somewhat by the win here. Now it would have been nice yeah. for this win to have have you know put Washington in the lead, but whatever. Let me, well, let me back up one step and ask you something about the game, which is, did you, were you able to watch the game last night? Yes, because I have Sunday ticket, but my brother who had planned his whole day around watching it down there in Charleston realized at kickoff, he could not watch the game. So he, he ended up using my account to stream it, but that was probably a conundrum for many out of town Washington fans. I know, I know at least a few of my friends it was. So, okay, so good. So we're talking about a game where you actually got to see it. And was, did, did I? Did you? Yes. I mean, I, this was one where like the whole family watched every play, which is very rare. Like, I can't remember the last time we watched a Washington game as a family. And then to have the end, the end result, I mean, we were literally like screaming in our house. We went next door to our neighbor's home. It's a Pittsburgh Steelers family. Ding dong, ditch them. And when they came to the door, <laughs> saying hail to the Washington football team in their front yard. <laughs> that was how hyped we were for this game, which is such a foreign and wonderful feeling. That's amazing. So, so you, would, you would therefore rank this one as more exciting than the Thanksgiving Day game? Yes, and to have them back to back. I mean, just a wonderful game. I mean, to beat an 11-0 Pittsburgh team, because they're not a division rival, but I think Pittsburgh outside of the division would be like the number one team you kind of want to beat. Uh, maybe, maybe New England. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I, I would put, I was trying to think of like other big regular season wins. I guess anything that clinches a playoff spot is great, but uh, the one that came to mind 
that I think does top this one still is the Dallas Monday night game with Mark Brunell to Santana Moss twice late to win 14-13. But this is right up there. Wow, that's bold. Um, yeah, I don't think you're wrong. The thing for me about why you want to beat Pittsburgh more than anyone else, and this really may just be me, is I feel like, yes, there's a quarter century overall losing trend, but I feel like for me, the string of losing that we are hoping has ended with Ron Rivera started with Pittsburgh, started on a Monday uh, in 2008. It was after Jim Zorn's team started, I think, four and two. Um, and then they lost to Pittsburgh in November, and it's felt like a steady, appalling downward spiral almost ever since with a couple of notable peaks. But so the idea of getting some redemption on a Monday, you, you know how much I like these dumb narrative things. And, and so to me, this was like nice full circle closure and, and could actually imply something good for the franchise as a whole. So, yeah, I would say this well, is a pretty exciting win. An excellent Monday afternoon football team like a Monday, Monday early evening football team. I mean, uh, I think you would have to yeah. argue that for Monday before sundown, they're, they're frankly the best of all time. The, this just showed a graphic, and I think, we, I think everybody knew this. They showed a graphic last night of like Mike Tomlin's coaching record by season for the last you know, 16 years he's been. It was Pittsburgh. insane. I mean, every, like, there was like a few eight and eight clunkers, which is, by the way, that's like our, our best years yeah. are like eight and eight, not in seven. There's a few of those. And then just like 14 and two, 12 and four, 11 and five, 13 and three for 16 years. Imagine being a Pittsburgh fan. God, that would be wonderful. And it was, I mean, just a delight to kick their ass. It's, it's, it, there's such a chicken and the egg thing, much like in New England, though, because, and I love Mike Tomlin. He's one of my favorite coaches in the league. He has been for years. I'm not slighting him, but he's had Roethlisberger for, I believe, that entire time, right? He, he didn't, he came on in 2008, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's there's a certain element of like, can you imagine that? Can you imagine having had a single primary starting quarterback who was a you know repeated Pro Bowler and likely Hall of Famer question mark? Um, well, just for that long, for that. Well, many so years. this dovetails with I have two points that I don't want to miss miss in in all this exuberance. One is if you just dropped in on December seventh to watch that game, you had not seen any football this season. You would think those were two pretty evenly matched teams. And I'm not saying that Washington looked like a contender out there. And I'm not saying that Pittsburgh looked like shit. I'm saying they both looked like, I don't know, decent. They're average teams. But they looked very even. And it wasn't like there was one, one was 11 and 0 and one was 4 and 7 or, or one, you know, this, or Washington squeaked one out or got lucky or whatever. It just looked like pretty much all around they were even and very similar which is striking. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, although I think that's a major knock on Pittsburgh's play calling and offense this game because their skill position players, with all due respect to you know Cam Sims and Logan Thomas, who had spectacular games and stepped up when they had to, I mean, Pittsburgh's wide receivers alone really should have, there should have been yeah. a visible, visible, visible excuse me, difference uh, there. The difference you know? is that they have, two awesome wide receivers and we only have one you know but, I mean, but Claypool which... and Juju were pretty quiet last night they have no run game which is very similar to Washington without Antonio Gibson which by the way they won this without Antonio Gibson <laughs> like getting hurt on the first or second series they won this with McLaurin having two catches uh but yeah I just thought like the, the everything about like how it's they're 
again, without Gibson, they're pass heavy offenses, but they're like very horizontal aerial attack pass heavy offenses that get the ball out quick and short. Don't take many shots deep. Uh, they have quarterbacks who are old as dirt, but know everything about the game and get the ball out. I, it just it would kind of seem like mirror images of one another, except that Ben Roethlisberger is a giant and that being a key difference. Well, it's weird to think of Ben Roethlisberger as a cerebral quarterback because he's just so like his persona, his shtick. I mean, mm-hmm. even uh, maybe this dates back to the, you know, kissing Susie Calmer sports blog days where his character was just like a big lumbering doofus. I mean, and, he looks kind of derpy. I mean, it, I'd say extremely derpy. I, I, I guess he and Alex Smith actually in some ways are almost exact opposites because Alex Smith looks like the opposite of derpy. He looks, in mm-hmm. fact, like uh, an accountant or something. Yeah, but like Mr. man, Mr. Quarter Zip. Yeah, but man, he has turned out to be one incredibly tough guy. Uh, which I don't think anybody, I mean, I certainly didn't know. I thought of him as like, you know, cerebral game manager, whatever, but I did not realize he was the kind of guy who A, recovers from the nearly severed leg, and then B, is just pumping out blood last night uh, from his leg, and afterwards is like, yeah, man, that was, that was sure was a lot of blood. How about that? It was, I, was, I mean, that so was when, crazy. When, when they showed the bloody leg and foot situation, I thought that it was his bad leg, and I almost vomited. Like I, I, I got sick. It was like, it was only like a two or three second lapse there before I realized which leg it was. But when I thought it was his bad leg, that was truly gruesome. I, I have to admit, I have sort of, I, yes, at that point specifically, yes. But for the most part, like when he gets hit, I've only started cringing as much as I cringe whenever any quarterback gets completely devastated. I have forgotten to worry properly about the fact that uh, his one leg like doesn't function properly. There was a point in the game. I think, I mean, it's such, it was a pretty improbable man. I mean, they were down 14, nothing. And I think Alex Smith was like nine for 14 passing for like 58 yards. So he was averaging about four yards a pass and it felt like it. And like they had no run game. They weren't even trying downfield. I think they took one shot to McLaurin downfield, like 20 or 30 yards downfield into double coverage. He almost made a nice catch. But like at that point, it just felt like there was no way they were going to move the ball. There was no way they were going to score two or three touchdowns to come back and win the game. And then it just turned. Like the second half was a totally different game. It was totally different. And I think, I feel like we need to give a significant amount of credit to Scott Turner for really uh, adjusting his game plan on the fly to the loss of Gibson, to what Mm -hmm. the Steelers were doing. And I haven't been quite sure what to make of Turner for a lot of this year. Um, But I think he might be good. Is that possible? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they, they scored 23 at Pittsburgh without Antonio Gibson and without having much to begin with, you know, I mean, to have Alex Smith, at quarterback and, McLaurin and Gibson being your really only, only two threats to, to score 23. And I feel like the like basically the entire offense was two or three big Cam Sims plays that were pretty special, like like splashy plays. And just like short passes to McKissick and Logan Thomas. The two of them, I, I think that this stat is right. I think they had 19 catches on 19 targets, which is just wild. Like that basically replaced the run game where 
you know, instead of handing it off, you were just short, you were completing a short pass. They were 19 for 19, those two players, Thomas and McKissick, for 168 yards. I mean, which all of them fall into this sort of category for me of, are they good, maybe? Like Logan Thomas, is he... If if I told you, yeah, that's who's going to be the starting tight end next season, you know, they're not going yeah. to make a big splash sign. Oh, dude, I, he's going to have, he's going to end up, I mean, he's productive. He's going to end up with like 55, maybe 60 catches, like 600 yards, like six touchdowns. Like those are good. Those are legit. Like he's going to be starting in fantasy lineups numbers for a tight end. And this is the irrational part. Something about him reminds me of Jordan Reed. Like he just looks like Jordan Reed. I, I don't know, but I, I there's like a there's a familiarity there with him that I enjoy. It's an interesting question because I know what you mean. I would have to look and see. Maybe they're just sort of built the same or something. But uh, yeah, yeah, I can I, see yeah. that. He, he's yeah, not I mean, he's not nearly as athletic on, on the field. They kind of look alike. He doesn't have he doesn't have those like freakish like whoa this dude's a problem like this dude yeah. <laughs> this dude's a Bleacher Report post problem <laughs> not quite like that. <laughs> Oh, okay. something about, <laughs> but McKissick too, like, I don't know that he's anything more than like, I don't know, a third down back or like, you know, a long down and distance back. Um, but something, especially with Smith, there seems to be a, uh, like they're in, they, they are in, like in sync. Every one of these little swing passes and screens, he's catching it like waist high in stride, cutting up field. Like it just something about the rhythm that those two have really works. Well, I mean, Alex Smith, I mean, I guess this is just my theme of this one is good, maybe, question mark. But like Alex Smith, you know, last year or two years ago, whenever it was that he was last able to physically play football, there was all this talk uh, on, you know, the podcast and among the media group about how much the team liked him, how motivating he was, how good it was having him in the huddle. And it all sounded like abject crap to me. Like, I just did not buy into that sort of thing. Um but again, I think it's starting to become kind of undeniable that that whatever these, I don't know if it's an intangible leadership quality or if it's a quite literally tangible things that he's doing, if it's just his ability to adjust protections and get guys where they want to be. And I don't know what, but he, at quarterback, it feels better. It's you, I, In some ways, you want to say that it's like, oh, it's like Mark Brunel or Todd Collins or somebody that we've had before. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there's an indescribable quality that elevates him above those kind of guys. And it's really weird um, because I don't want to believe in it, but there it is. Here's, here's a stat for you. Um, Hit me. First of all, he's three and one as a starter this year, which is great. I mean, the team was otherwise one and six. He was six and four as a starter in 18. The team was otherwise one and five. Overall, for his over the last three years, the, the Washington football team is nine and five with Alex Smith. Six and 24 without. Right. And that's what I'm saying. And like, it's not one where you would look at it and be like, you know, if, if that happened to uh, Russell Wilson or um, Patrick Mahomes or one of these guys who is visibly on another level and you're like, well, yeah, you take him out. Obviously, you're uh, Alex Smith. If you stripped everything off and just played somebody, showed somebody his plays on the field uh, with no context or sound or anything, you'd be like, yeah, whatever. I mean, he's a he's a replacement level NFL quarterback. 
But the the numbers indicate that there is a quantifiable difference between what he does on the field and what the next man up does on the field. And that's super I mean, weird. It's it's weird because I don't think he passes the eye test. Like At all. Isolate little plays. You'd be like, oh, this guy can't move. He can't throw. <laughs> like, okay, done. Also, look at his stats, his individual stats. Like His numbers are very similar to Dwayne Haskins. His QB ratings like which is <laughs> Which is really strange. Yeah, because Dwayne really Haskins was not was not good. He was not good. No, I mean he got his ass benched prematurely despite being the first round pick. But dude, nine and five versus six and twenty four over the last three seasons, and nearly full three full seasons. Right, that's that's crazy. And I, I heard JP say JP Finley say say that uh, he should not only win the comeback player of the year award, but they should name it after him. I don't think that's crazy. Like I, this is this like so another guy. I think it was Pete Rosenberg tweeted last night. Like last night's game felt like the final scene in the Alex Smith movie. <laughs> yeah, like it was just, well, yeah. And I, I, all this stuff. I don't know. Maybe it's silly. Maybe it's hyperbolic. But I, I, I'm not against any of that. Well, so it's only the final scene in the movie in in two possible versions of the screenplay. One is the one where you sort of just freeze frame at a high moment, regardless of if it's the final, uh, you know, fight or not. Uh, or the other is if they just crash and tank for the rest of the year. Um, there's versions where, you know, there's this goes on significantly longer, which would be is insane to say. And I certainly don't think it's going to happen. But I mean, my God, he's apparently very good. Um, this is the perfect segue, by the way. I don't know where it. you're going, but do you mind if I take it? No, please. If I take it from here. Yeah. Okay. So last night, amidst Washington beating the 11 and 0 Steelers to move into a tie, more or less, for first place with the Giants, even at five and seven, fine. I saw Robert Mays from The Athletic tweet something like, are Washington fans really celebrating the fact that they're improving their chances of moving from eighth in the draft to 19th? Because if they, you know, whatever, keep losing, maybe they get an eighth pick, maybe it's a 10th pick, whatever, it's in that range. And if they win the division, even at five and seven, six and 10, they'll get the 19th pick, most likely, as the playoff team with the, with the worst record in the regular season. Which echoes back to last week's poll that we ran on this Mr. Relevant which is basically straight up, would you rather, as, a, as presumably a Washington fan, because I don't know why you'd follow Mr. Relevant if you weren't a Washington fan, would you rather they win the division or lose and get a higher draft pick, which is probably in that 8 to 10 range? Nearly 40% of respondents said, I'd rather they lose the division and we get a higher draft pick. This is truly wild to me. Like, I can't even understand that train, that line of thinking. Are, which way did you vote in this poll? I voted in this case for, for I prefer the playoffs. I, I did, but I, I'm not as God. baffled by the other. I'm not as baffled by the other side of it. There have definitely been times and situations where I have seen the other side. If they had, if New York won and then Washington had lost last night, I might have swung all the way around and said, you know what, just, just play out the string. Um, uh, but I think there's a difference between a five and seven playoff berth, or five and excuse me, five and eleven playoff berth, and um, <laughs> there's, there's know, no playoff berth at five and eleven. Maybe it, six but, and 
be, be that as may, my point is a terrible record playoff yeah. berth. And what it looks like is going to happen, which is that, you know, over the course of the whole season, this will be, you know, maybe it'll be a seven and nine playoff team. Maybe it'll be an eight and eight playoff yeah. team. But the NFC yeah. East, it's going to be respectable. And if they get respectable wins on the way, like obviously yesterday's win is hugely respectable. That has a tangible effect that people don't seem to remember, like right. as far as free agents, as far as re-signing your own guys, as far as team building, being able to say, look, we're the kind of team that can do these things and we're going to get better. Well, it, as far it, as also having a roster full of guys who don't suck. Yeah, that, that also. Like, yeah, if you wait. go seven and nine, give me that roster for the future versus a five and 11 or a three and 13 like last year. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, but I'm surprised you're so surprised. I mean, this fan base—it's been a rough twenty-five or so years. Exactly, exactly. Like we don't make the playoffs every year. We draft in the mid to high first round every year. They haven't made the playoffs in five years. Washington has double-digit loss seasons. I think nine or ten of the last seventeen or eighteen years. So we're we're drafting high, half or maybe most of the time. Like, high draft picks has not been the problem here. Also, it's not like the Jets blowing it against Oakland to maintain the lead for Trevor Lawrence at the number one overall pick. Like, I can understand the mentality that would say I'd rather be 0-12 than 1-11 because 0-12 means we get to pick the franchise-defining quarterback at number one overall. That's a totally different thing than... You know what? I, I I think I'd rather have you know the ninth pick than the nineteenth pick. So let's lose instead of win the freaking division. When you lay it out like that, yes, it does sound insane. The other thing that I think people are forgetting is that there's a difference between doing this in um, you know Jay Gruden's last full year as a head coach or Bill Callahan's um, interim year as a coach and doing this in a new head coach's first year. I mean, it, it's I, I'm talking about culture and tone and stuff like that is all sort of vague and amorphous, but I mean, I don't think you can deny that it gets your tenure off to a, a better start. If you yeah. go to the playoffs, then don't. I mean, I have a hard time almost ever rooting for losing like the jets example with the Jaguars at just one win behind and both of them needing a franchise quarterback and there being a franchise quarterback at number one overall like that. I can see that being a scenario where losing is yes. But even last year, when Washington was in play for the second pick and ended up getting it, they went three and 13 and they got Chase Young. I still didn't want them to lose, really. You know, like down the stretch, like, okay, maybe they get a win and it bumps them down from two to three. Oh, well, maybe they would have drafted Tua. <laughs> I don't know. But what you're saying about the, you know, Rivera's first year and instilling, you know, maybe a culture that also doesn't suck. Like all that, that goes back to the beginning of the season when we were talking about what was a successful season. We talk, we weren't talking about playoffs. You know, maybe we were talking about like Haskins' development, you know, being pretty crucial to it. But we yeah, were also ba saying bad hey, news on that front, Jamie. Yeah, bad news there. But like, hey, if they go six and 10, like they just doubled their wins. And maybe like the next step from there is playoffs, you know, well, like for, not to simplify it, but like just, just getting to six wins is probably a win for the season getting to six or seven wins and making the playoffs. Uh, that's awesome. I just can't imagine rooting for like just moving up 10 spots in the draft being preferable to that.
Also, there was something we talked about. Um, I can't remember which one of us said it. It was probably me because some of the sort of dumb stuff that I come up with. But where there was a difference between a six and ten with a losing first half of the season and then an improving second half of the season yeah. versus a just sort of scattered six and ten. But we are very like if you look at the win loss record, um, there were a, a lot of losses. There was that five loss streak uh, out of the mm-hmm. first six games. Um, mm-hmm. So. Winning out, it's not just like random. It's not just scattered. That is a team that has figured out what it's doing. It's coaching staff that's figured out how to use their players. It's players who figured out how to play. I mean, that's that's a that to me is exactly what we talked about wanting at the start of the season. Uh, aside from the Dwayne Haskins thing, which uh, you know, whoops. <laughs> yeah, and I don't. I mean, it, it's encouraging. Like we're talking about, we talked a lot about the offense. Like, look at the defense and look what they have, especially on the front, on the front line. Uh, like, it's real. It's not just that they're five and seven and they beat Pittsburgh. It's that, like, on the season, they have, by pretty much any statistical measure, a good defense. They have an overall positive point differential, which is crazy. <laughs> like, I can't even believe that that's, that's true. But they're plus two on the season. And they're trending in the right direction. Like, I don't know, by pretty much every measure, you look at this and you say, oh, it's not a bad team. It's not a great team. I'm not expecting them to run the table. I'm not expecting them to, like, go three and one. I'd be happy with two and two in these final four. But that's kind of the point. Like, I'm also sort of expecting two and two, <laughs> which I never would have I never would have imagined myself saying just a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm still kind of struggling with that. Um I will, like I said last week, I think the 49ers game is as sure, or I thought that it was as sure a loss for Washington as anything I could picture. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, I still think it's a probable loss. I mean, I haven't, have you seen the line? I I don't, I assume the 49ers are favored. I mean, you have, you have the the bugaboo about like the the Kyle Shanahan factor. But I mean, they did get their ass kicked last night. And they're playing, you know, they're at uh, Arizona next Sunday without their quarterback or their their best offensive player, Kittle. I mean, they got their ass kicked by a a Buffalo team. That what are they now? Nine and nine and something, nine and three, and yeah. against a quarterback who had just an astronomically great day. <laughs> he did look really good, like Josh Allen. Um, we were watching so, that a little bit. My wife just saw one throw and she's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, I mean, you've been watching Alex Smith and Ben Roethlisberger for three hours. That's what Josh Allen looks like. Yeah. Uh, although, I mean, on, to be honest, I... go ahead. No, no. Washington is a four point dog at San Francisco. That sounds about right. I think it'll probably tick slightly towards Washington over the course of the week, maybe to three. Mm-hmm. Um, coming off the the thing, but okay. So anyway, but what I was saying was, so you say two and two, they've got Niners, Seahawks, Panthers, Eagles. Um, they have to beat the Eagles at this point. Um, otherwise, especially to close out the season, because otherwise, no matter what happens in the next three games, that's a backslide and a bad finish. Um, so that's one of your wins. Uh, where are you, which of the other two are you going to call? Which of the other ones are you going to call wins? Uh, I'm just looking at it. I, I kind of look at it like all of these are pretty much in the realm of, of coin flip landia. 
Like, I think I think at Seattle, I'm sorry, Seattle at home is probably the toughest game. I don't know. Seattle at home, on the road at San Francisco, Carolina at home, all three of those games to me, like, I, I would not be surprised either way. So I'm just giving the Redskins one of those. I'm sorry, Washington one of those. And in giving Washington the Philly game. So I'm giving them two out of the four to finish seven and nine. And just fingers crossed that New York doesn't get to seven wins as well. I can deal with that. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds plausible when you lay it out like that. It's just uh, sort of like I keep saying, the last quarter century makes it so hard to imagine, you know? I know. Well, last night my wife was like, because me and Miles, my 10-year-old, we were getting fairly hype during the second half and she's like i don't want to see you guys get let down i know how this ends like just please calm down <laughs> and it didn't end that way yeah it was no, great. i was like, i was much more sweat play part of why the montez sweat play by the way was so fantastic is because you just i was just sent that last drive had drive had so much dread like roethlisberger has two minutes to get three points he'll probably get seven game over like that was my whole mentality. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, that was my play, I was, sweat bats it down. To finish the second straight game that has ended essentially with Montez sweat batting a pass that got picked off. Yeah. Um, I yeah no I was I watching. Guess he batted I, it up. Yes, he batted it up. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I um, I was watching much more like your wife than what you described. Like by the end, I was doing that thing where I'm like, well, while this is a crucial final drive, I'll just sort of putter around you know i don't know doing dishes or whatever i'm keeping half an eye on it because that way it can't hurt me when they lose you know that was i was in yeah i was in <laughs> full-on you know i'll just right. pretend mode yeah <clears throat> but yeah, yeah the psychology of that is wonderful yeah it um, makes me feel like a broken human being it's great so yeah uh seven and nine i think i think the nfc east winner is going to be seven and nine it's just a matter of you know are the giants going to get there um, who do they have? They have the Cardinals, Browns, Ravens, Cowboys. Oof, that is um, that's probably harder than Washington's. I think it's similar, but maybe slightly harder. Yeah. Well, it depends. I guess it depends if and, you believe and in the Daniel Brown. Jones coming back. Like, what's going? Like, that's the other thing about the Seahawks game. By the way, we didn't even mention that Alfred Morris scored two touchdowns, and Colt McCoy was their quarterback. Like, just crazy, crazy shit happening in the NFC East. Um, the uh. Yeah, it's it's bonkers. I think, you know, I hope the Browns are for real. I think a lot of this for New York is going to hinge on this week. If the Cardinals continue spiraling and lose to the Giants, um, that's probably, you know, that's going to make it real hard for Washington. And conversely, if the Cardinals can pull it together and win this one, um, that helps a lot, I think. I think that Cardinals game, to me, is the real linchpin of these other ones because it feels like the most um, variable of, of all the remaining games for them. I don't know, man. We get another week of the first-place Washington Redskins, I mean, football team. And, I, by the way, I'm not doing that, like, on purpose. I just can't. I'm, I'm really trying to stop saying Redskins. Um, so, anyway, sorry. But first-place Washington football team, 42% chance at the playoffs. I, I, I'm like giddy about this. I spent the first two or three months of the season just like not watching. 
This <laughs> is such a weird season. Well, I, I feel like uh, we used yeah. to have conversations where I was like, what would they have to do to get you interested again? What would they have to do to, to regain your full attention? And apparently the answer is just, you know, win a few games. In a why does it, why does it, this is what happens with them though. Cause it's like how many different seasons? I feel like there's been three or four different, probably three different seasons during the past 15 years where they were like four and seven, five and seven, and had to win out to make the playoffs. There's well, Mark so, Brunel, there's Todd yep. Collins, I think yep. Cousins, or was it the Griffin year? I think it was the Griffin year, actually. It was the Griffin year, yeah. It was uh, with, with a little Cousins sprinkled in there. It was yeah. 05, 07, and 12, I believe, would have been the years, right? <laughs> yeah, and so I don't know. It just feels familiar, and I was it, it, similar experience those years as well. Um, what we hope is different this time is that this time they then keep the, the sort of trend going to start the next year instead of doing it all over again. And that's what it feels like, by the way, it does feel like it's building towards something versus just being like, Oh, this is, this would be our Super Bowl If we could just squeak out the uh, division. If we can just lose to Tampa in a home playoff game, we will have won the season. So do we, do we have time to move on to a, uh, the return of a different aging, injured gunslinger. Uh, I have to talk about Russell Westbrook. Or were you talking about Boba Fett? I was talking about Boba Fett, but Russell Westbrook's crucial too. Let's do it. I see. I you just you were describing Boba, Boba Fett, but I thought you were describing Russell Westbrook. So talk to me about Russell Westbrook. You know I'm not a huge Wizards guy. Uh, I in fact suggested that perhaps <laughs> you wanted to do the podcast with somebody else to talk about that. But talk to me. Talk me through that. your feelings. I love that. It, I love when people don't give a shit about something and they describe it as I'm not a huge, you know, whatever fan. Well, I, mean, I think, I think yeah. for me and the wizards, that's accurate. Like I like it when they win. I like going to their games. If they ever, you know, the times when they have been relevant in the playoffs, I enjoy it. But the rest of the time I could not possibly care less. So make so me care. Is, Jamie. So, so this, I, there's a lot of parallels I feel like with wizards and Westbrook and Washington and making this, this playoff push, because it's not like, I think trading for Westbrook is this amazing thing. Like he is an aging problematic superstar problematic in that, like he's a very high usage player who can't shoot very well and has had trouble in the playoffs. And he's also 32. And on top of all that, he has one of the worst contracts in the NBA making over $40 million a year for the next three full seasons. I think there's a player option for the third year, but like, why wouldn't he take it? So like most teams trading for Westbrook, it's a problem. That's why there was no market for Westbrook. Houston wanted to get rid of him. It was a known thing. And there were no, no deals materialized, which I think was very much in Washington's favor. Because Washington has its own aging, problematic superstar and problematic in ways that go beyond Westbrook's ways. John Wall also can't shoot. There was a crazy stat. Like between the two, there was like, out of all NBA players of the last like eight seasons who have been like high volume shooters from like 16 feet or further, they ranked, there was like 82 of those types of players that like checked all the boxes to qualify. They were 81st and 82nd, like the two worst shooters. <laughs> so that's interesting. Um, but he's problematic because he's had like some off the court stuff. It's been questionable at best. Uh, and also well, off the court, like that, that's not questionable. Like he seems to be like an awesome member of the DC community. Um, but the injury stuff is just like, dude, he's barely played for three years. Uh, he's coming back from a torn Achilles. 
who knows what version of John Wall you're even getting. And he also has the same terrible contract, almost exactly the same terrible contract as Russell Westbrook. In fact, if you were to line up all the contracts in the NBA and say, which one is the most terrible, i.e., which would you not trade for under any circumstances, it would be John Wall's contract. So the fact that they were able to basically trade Wall for Westbrook straight up is incredible. Like they traded a 23 first rounder that's super protected. It will never be a high pick. It will, it's a first, it's a mid to late first rounder two to three years from now. That's that pick is nothing. And they got rid of wall who is a questionable contributor and brought in Westbrook. Who's probably going to make all NBA this year. And now they have Westbrook and wall and the expectation for this year and next year is playoffs. It's a fantastic deal. So, it's interesting that you described Hipple's pro- wall as problematic off the court because it seems like most of the people who are upset about this are upset because they like him off the court. They like the things he did off the court. You know, they talk about his support of uh, the young girl who died of cancer, mm-hmm. um, all those other things. Uh, what is the bad stuff that, that he's well, that he's? Well, first doing? of all, I should say I like John Wall. And I think he's an awesome member of the community because I think you have, like what you said with the relationship you have with the girl uh, who died, uh, the way he talked about that publicly, like on camera, on the court, uh, was really powerful. Uh, He was in the streets this summer uh, with Bradley Beal and others. He's just, from all accounts, like he's the type of guy who would pull up to like, you know, a basketball game or, or just like a community event and just be with the people, you know, like just... Just regular guy. But that regular guyness, I think, is also part of the downfall and part of what I'm talking about, like from a, like, I don't know, I don't really use the word problematic. For me, like, I've always questioned his fitness. Like, he very often, like, did not look like he'd been training very hard. <laughs> like, is John Wall fat is a question that, like, has been asked many times over the past decade. Uh, not because he necessarily looked obese or whatever. He just didn't look like fit, which is strange for an elite point guard who's probably the fastest player with the ball in the entire NBA. And then, you know, there's the uh, what was the uh, the picture from last summer? I think he was in Vegas with Team USA, where kind of played into what I'm talking about, where it's like this does not look like a dude who's been training very hard, uh, who's not prioritizing basketball above all else. And look. That's his decision. He can make that, but I also can make a decision as a fan to say, I don't want that guy to be our max player guy. Um, and then, you know, stuff like this summer, there's a video that everybody's kind of refers to that apparently really ruffled the feathers of Leontis and others in the organization of him at, you know, some sort of like gathering or party. Um, I think in New York this summer, late summer during Corona, no masks, no shirt, you know, whatever wasn't a great look um for me like all that stuff is not really what motivates me to think this was a fantastic deal what motivates me to say it was a fantastic deal is like his health you know like literally his injury history and the fact that he was a borderline all nba like kind of like he's an all-star in his prime which was several several years ago and we're getting a guy in Westbrook who was all NBA this year and put up numbers and a performance for Houston this year that was better than Wall ever was. 
So well, yeah, give me that for the next three years. Yeah, as much as I talk about how I don't follow and don't care about the Wizards, your interpretation matches much closer. It's just the on the court stuff. Everything, leave mm-hmm. everything else aside. You're getting a guy who was great last year for a guy who has coming off this injury, and that makes a huge difference. Now, I have the most. I, I rarely identify in any way as a sports writer, but this is the most generic, cranky, middle-aged sports writer thing where I am still bitter uh, towards John Wall for being mildly disinterested in me when I tried to talk to him about his friendship with then Redskins wide receiver Brandon Banks like a decade ago. Oh my gosh, ago. Brandon Banks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And And keep in mind, I want to be really, really clear on this. John Wall was not rude to me. He was not... Um, he, he was not a bad person. He was not unpleasant. Right. He was mildly disinterested in the dumb crap that I was trying to talk to him about. Um, and because I am in some small part of my brain, an aging, middle-aged, you know, white sports writer person, uh, that minor slight has made me be like, yeah, get him out of town a decade mm-hmm. later uh, mm-hmm. after I'm totally uninvolved. So I'm on your side for this one, but I was just, I was trying to get a better understanding of it all. So. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think the thing that concerns me as a Wizards fan, like the downside, is how with the impact on Bradley Beal, who is a legit star and has gotten better, like each of his seven-ish seasons for the Wizards, and last year put up absurd numbers, like thirty points a game, an efficient thirty points a game, with you know filling up the stat sheet in other ways. But the problem is like with Bradley Beal and not much else around him, you know, Davis Bertans and Rui and Thomas Bryant, uh, there's not a lot there around him. They're going to be, they're going to win like 30 games and that's going to suck. And we're very used to that as Wizards fans. Pairing Westbrook with Beal may limit Beal or I don't know. It's, it's interesting to have how that's going to fit, but pairing Westbrook with Beal, I look at them as like a 45, 50 win team without much else around them. And it could be really interesting. Like they could work well together. And then you've got Bertans, who's like one of the best shooters in the NBA who can spread the floor by, I mean, Bertans and Beal both are two of the best shooters in the NBA. Um, and then some of the younger guys could be complimentary. Like it's, I don't know. Like I, I could see the argument that like this deal somehow limits them in terms of like championship contender building. If you're really playing like chess with it, but they weren't really in a position to do that anyway. Beal's got two years here. I look at Beal Westbrook for the next two years as a Wizards fan, and I'm excited that like they're a solid Eastern Conference playoff team with two stars that are, are fun to watch. Well, you've convinced me. I'm now fired up for this Wizards season. When, when does the NBA season start this I think this year? it's like the 22nd or something. I mean, definitely before Christmas Day. I mean, also, like, the Christmas Day schedule was announced, like, a week or two ago, and it's a pretty awesome lineup, I, I must say. <laughs> like, Wall, or, uh, Beal Westbrook might have actually been, the Wizards might have been considered for it if this deal happened, which is, like, another feather in the cap of the deal. Is like, there was no consideration whatsoever to putting the Wizards on Christmas Day before the trade. Now you look at it and say, well, you know, if there was a couple more games, they'd be on there. Well, something to look forward to. I did not realize the NBA was allegedly starting in two weeks, so that's fascinating. Um, yeah, it, 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 not neither was LeBron James, by the way. He was like kind of famously in the last day or two, it, like asked on camera about it, and he was like, "What? Uh, we, have <laughs> we have a vacation scheduled." <laughs> 
And am I hearing correctly that James Harden has just outright disappeared? Uh, yes. And I mean, this, this is, yeah. Wall's new home is an interesting place. Uh, it's, it's not very functional at the moment. Okay, cool. I think, well, they, sounds... they, they, I think they've been referred to as the Knicks of the South. <laughs> that was a report yesterday. Houston is the Knicks of the South, which is just a delightful way of describing a team. Because I think of the Knicks as the Washington football team of the NBA. <laughs> oh my God. Now you're just being cruel. Would you like um, to talk about Boba Fett? Sure. Let's Nerd. talk about Boba Fett. I'm cur- <laughs> well, I'm curious. It's the same thing as last time. Uh, spoilers again for whatever episode of The Mandalorian this is. I don't even know anymore. Did this Six, work for you? Yeah, whatever. I'm a nerd. Six, um, well, well, you know what's funny is like I was a little you you semi spoiled it for me. Uh, I did. I randomly on Twitter Friday maybe saw you tweet something like, you know, go off Robert Rodriguez or something like that. <laughs> Does this ring a bell? You tweeted something. Yeah, like yeah. I said, I said Robert okay. Rodriguez. Wow, or something like that. Yeah, yeah so something, I, something I like that. I didn't know he was directing the episode, and I saw that, and I couldn't help but like think about what you meant by that. And I, so. I started thinking like, oh, this is probably like a kind of really uh, action-filled episode of The Mandalorian. So not really a spoiler, but that's exactly what it was. And I thought it was awesome. Uh, I was totally in. I don't really care about like the like the Boba Fett character. Like that means I have no relationship with that. So like him coming back into the picture and like kicking ass in all sorts of fun and cool ways was just fun and cool for me and didn't carry any additional like emotional baggage, uh, good or bad or otherwise. I just thought it was an awesome episode. And I love that. Like the stakes have been raised. Like the child has been abducted. Uh, yes. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm all the way in. I think it was one of my favorite episodes yet. I, I agree. It was one of my favorite episodes yet too, but that's what I was, what I was mainly curious about is, was this any different to you than, Ahsoka Tano, who also similarly showed up, was super cool, uh, fought a lot. Um, was this the same thing to you, or do you have do you really have no connection to Boba Fett whatsoever? I maybe slightly more connection because he was in the original trilogy, and like that's just a character that you're somewhat I'm somewhat familiar with, you know. So like maybe slightly more interested in that, but also just like the environment of the episode in which he entered was much, much cooler, <laughs> you know? Like, it was, like, this awesome, like, Western gunfight situation I, I don't, with the baby Yoda, like, you know, in a, in a <laughs> catatonic state on his signal stone? Was that what it was called? I have no idea. The big stone thing. I, like, like... It was a very, I, good, it was a very good meme, you know? <laughs> like, it yes. looked like... It looked like he had, like, accidentally eaten the entire box of edibles. <laughs> <laughs> like... You know, and it was just like on yeah, minute like thirteen of a of a you know dark star jam. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, just I thought the episode overall was much better. So, well, it was because that was, character was elevated as you know just by association. But that was what that's part of what's so interesting to me about the Mandalorian as a series and as the way they do it, where there's a couple different writers, although they Favreau writes most of them, and then uh, a bunch of different directors, is you really get to see the difference. Um, you'll remember me complaining about Dave Filoni's writing and direction uh-huh. last week. Um, uh-huh. Whereas Robert Rodriguez is 
arguably the best choice in the entire world to direct the Mandalorian because he is a great action director and he is one of the pioneers of like stupid 95% CGI shark boy and lava girl spy kids crap. Um, so he's good at working with the technology. So like you watched his way of framing the fights of where to cut of how to build tension. And then the writing from Favreau instead of Filoni, like you pointed out, Put the child in jeopardy. Give us mm -hmm. stakes. Give us clearly defined, you know, what is at risk? Why is everybody doing what? Where are they? You know, what, one group is at the top of the hill. Everybody else is at the bottom of the hill. They're defending it. Like, yeah. all of this yeah. was so clear. And it really, to me, A, I thought it was a great episode on its own. But B, I thought it made the last episode look horrible. I thought it just, it really highlighted everything the last episode was bad at. So right. Um, right. that's my thing. Yep. That's interesting. and. I get. I guess if I cared about Ahsoka Tana, mm -hmm. is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah, yeah I think so. I think you. Ahsoka Tana. Least, yeah, you're at least ninety-five percent of the way there. Okay. I think. Well, yeah. I would just be really disappointed if I cared about that character, because by that episode. Uh, but since I don't, it was just like kind of an okay episode by Mandalorian standards, and yeah. we move on. <laughs> yeah, and well, I mean, and that's that's the best thing about the Mandalorian is like, yes, we talk about it each week and whatever, but in the end, it's like, and now there'll be another one next week, and it's going to be probably pretty dumb fun too. So I know, cool. and I'm so sad that there's only two more left. By the way, I know it's dumb fun, it's super nitpicky, but when Mando is trying to get back to Baby Yoda because the uh, dark stormtroopers. I, I actually don't know, but yeah, something like that. Those like I there's like kind of four dudes who are flying down from yeah. the ship. They're pretty badass. They didn't I, I felt like I was watching a different show when they came in. I don't know why. It just seemed like some other some other like animated movie or something. Um anyways, when they came, when it was apparent they were coming in, Amanda's trying to get back up the hill to the baby. That took forever. I felt like they were traversing that hill like a snap the whole episode. But when he had to get back to save the child, it was like they cut to him like four times trying to get back up that hill. And it was like he was climbing a mountain. Well, there was also the real, very real question of why didn't he just pick up his jetpack and use that, uh, which uh, uh, I, uh, yes. did yes. not make a ton of sense to me. But yeah. Again, the difference between a creative team where you're willing to like buy in and go with their dumb bullshit and a creative team where you're like, ugh, why can't you write a story is significant. So, um, Have you ever thought about like how many stormtroopers you could beat in a fight? <laughs> well, yes and no. The answer for me is zero, regardless of how incompetent they are. But yes, it, I try not to talk out loud during the shows because once we do it once, my kids don't have a real sense of like, what moments it's okay to make a joke during which ones it's not. But as Boba okay. Fett was like crushing stormtrooper armor with a stick, I was like, what is it even for? Like what, what is it, what do they tell these people that this armor is supposed to do? Uh, it does not make a ton <laughs> of sense. I will so. say, cause I, I started kind of watching the Mandalorian with my 10 year old, but he didn't, hasn't really cared. So we haven't gotten very far. I, this was like the first time where I'd be like, I don't know if I want to watch this with the 10 year old. Because it huh. was like pretty brutal, like the Boba Fett stuff with the stick, like just the way he was clubbing those dudes and like impaling them and stuff. Like I felt like it was one step above the usual level of violence within Mando. Yeah, maybe that's why I liked it. Maybe I'm just yeah. a broken human being. I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm in on it.
I'm in on, uh, in on Mando still. And I watched the first episode ever of The Boys last night. Oh, what did uh, you think of that? I was surprisingly into it. I feel like it's a very poorly marketed show, by the way. Yeah, like, I would. Everything I would, from the name to like the art, like whenever it's come up on my scroll or whatever, or whenever it's recommended to me, like it just it doesn't appeal to me. It just doesn't look like a cool show. But yeah. then I actually watched it, and I I was pretty pulled in. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it's a classic example of if you like that, uh, it, there's it's all it's all of a piece. There's no sudden swerve where they're like, and now a musical. Um, so <laughs> it's uh, I, I'll be interested to hear as you watch through it. I think I said it to you before. It's interesting to me because it's based on a comic by a writer who I love the same writer who did preacher and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and it is without question, the worst thing he's ever written. It is terrible. It is one of my least favorite things that I've ever, you know, followed through to the end and, and spent a bunch of money on. Um, and the show is so much better than the book, which, you know, people never say, but it, it really is. So I'm curious yeah. to hear what you think. I, I, uh, from the first episode, I really liked the, the fight and the, uh, like the I don't know what type of like audio video store in, in New York. Yeah. There's a fight with the transparent guy or the translucent yeah. guy. That was yeah. really good. Yeah, that was good. There's there's a good set. There's at least one good set piece in each episode. Um, the the once I realized who the Huey actor was and whose kid he is, I just could not stop staring at him to see how much he looks like his parents. You, do you know who his parents are? No, but tell me. It's uh, it's Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid. It's it's their kid. Oh my um, god! And once you realize this, it's like in one shot he looks like Dennis Quaid. In one shot he looks like Meg Ryan. In one That's shot he wild. looks like Dennis. It's so he did weird. Look, he did seem very familiar, but I didn't I couldn't place it and I didn't look yeah. him up. <laughs> it's 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 uh, it took me a long time to get there, uh, and I finally just Googled it to see, and it. Once you once you see it, you cannot unsee it, and it is super weird for me. Yeah. Also, I like I don't know if this carries through, but I like that they're using like the Clash and like Iggy Pop and stuff like as soundtrack. It, I don't know for some reason it felt like something I would have enjoyed like I don't know in the late nineties. <laughs> like you know, well, like I felt like it was soundtracked that way, and just the vibe of it for some reason felt that way to me. Well, the writer of the comic is somebody who was very much of the late 90s. His comics were very much like Tarantino influenced and and, and hit that same chord with 20 something, uh, probably mostly white, um, uh-huh. annoying males like me. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And, and so it makes sense that they've really captured that vibe in the show. Well, I'm fascinated to hear if you stick with this one. That's one that you will not be watching with a 10 year old. You know, I, I, my side, my side watch when it wasn't sports and like my family was, our wife wasn't around. My side watch has been the most recent season of Fargo. And that was tough. That was a slog. It was slow. It was unfulfilling. I was disappointed in Fargo. So now I'm actually looking forward to watching this. Uh, Well, I'll report back. Our side watch, my wife and I together is we are finally watching the fast and furious movies, which somehow I had never, we had never seen before. (laughs) I haven't seen a minute. And so, but see, now I'm getting all these jokes from the last 20 years. I just, I didn't even know there were jokes. And it turns out that like everybody's been quietly talking about Vin Diesel behind my back for two decades. And I just had no idea. So now I, I know. love that. I love when a blind spot is revealed. 
fascinating. All right, man. All right. Hopefully, uh, I'll touch with you next Monday. We'll see if the uh, Washington football team is five and eight or six and seven. That sounds like a very minor detail to be concerned about, but that is our concern these days. Hail to the Washington it, football team. It's really nice to have that concern again, isn't it? Yep. I'll talk to you then. Bye.